Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the greatest podcast in American history, or dang dude, what the heck happened to America. This week we're talking about the progressive movement, sort of the last of our looks at reactions to the Industrial Revolution, how people were trying to deal with the changes brought by the all the technological, capital, economic changes coming out of the Industrial Revolution. So we're going to look at the progressive, sort of the most moderate of the three groups we're looking at, right? We've talked about the labor movement, the anarchists at Haymarket, you know, the people going on strike at Homestead. And then we've talked about the populists, so these agrarians trying to change the system, you know, increase government control of various uh, farming-related activities. And now we're going to look at the progressives. So we're going to talk about sort of three major things here today, uh, the, t- the development of the progressive movement, right? So how it started, what were some of the underpinnings of it? We'll look at some of the progressive policies. So what they were sort of fighting for, what they wanted to change, what they wanted to do on the governmental level. And then we'll look at their legacy, right? So what what they did and sort of how the how what they did in the you know early 1900s, late 1800s affects us today still. So a couple major questions for this podcast. One is who were the progressives, right? Progressive, especially today, gets thrown around as just this sort of catch-all word for anybody, you know, vaguely left of center at all. So we're going to look at who the actual like progressives in the late 1800s, early 1900s were. We'll talk about what did they accomplish, right? So what did they actually get done? What did they get changed? How were they reacting to the Industrial Revolution? So why were they doing all of this? And then why did they succeed? Why did the progressives succeed where the sort of radical labor movement and the populace did not succeed, right? We talked a lot about what the radical labor movement wanted, what they tried to do, what the populace tried to do, and how in the end they sort of made some movement, but they largely failed. The progressives is sort of a different story, which we'll see. They actually succeeded a lot while the labor movement and populace didn't, and we're going to look at why that was. So before we get started into all that, though, let's talk about our person for this week's episode, Margaret Sanger. Uh, you might have heard that name in the news recently, right? With the sort of repealing of Roe v. Wade, uh, she was the she opened. The, she was a big sort of progressive person uh, talking about birth control. She opened Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States. Uh, she helped start organizations that would eventually become Planned Parenthood, right? So not Planned Parenthood itself, but sort of these organizations that would eventually lead into the creation of Planned Parenthood. She helped legalize contraception in the United States. It had been illegal before. You couldn't use contraception or sell contraception in the United States, and she sort of pushed for changing those laws. She also was a eugenicist. She was virulently anti-immigration and very much pro-compulsory sterilization, right? She wanted to force people that she thought shouldn't have kids to like go undergo procedures so they wouldn't have kids. She wanted to kick immigrants out, not letting more in. And she also believed in you could like breed better people, right? So you have these two sides. She also accepted support from high ranking Klansmen in her sort of quest to open up these birth control clinics to start organizations like Planned Parenthood. So that's sort of this the reason why I bring all that up 
is she sort of shows the, what the double-edged sword of progressivism was like during this time, right? Lots of progressive actively promoted reforms that really helped people, right? Birth control clinics really helped people in the United States. The legalization of contraception really helped people in the United States. But many of those reforms that sort of helped these people were also very paternalistic, very sexist, very racist, and ended up hurting a lot of people as well, right? Because they came along with all this other baggage, right? These ideas of anti-immigration, these ideas of compulsory sterilization, they were sort of, a lot of people saw them as going hand in hand, that you couldn't do one without the other. Margaret Sanger was one of those people. So that's my, that's one person. We'll talk about some other people as well who have these sort of this dual edge nature of progressivism. So one argument I want to make in this podcast is that progressivism is sort of the start of modern liberalism. I know liberalism is one of these terms, just like populism or whatever, that sort of has enough meetings that it eventually becomes meaningless. But sort of in the traditional political science sense, modern, modern liberalism during this time was a new way of sort of thinking about the role of government, right? And this is, liberalism was an idea that was talked about in the late 1800s, early 1900s as sort of a very new thing, and the what it meant hadn't really spread out yet. So what did it mean during this specific time, right? This new way of thinking about the role of the government, what the government should do. And basically, liberalism argued that the government should provide the rewards of the Industrial Revolution to more people, right? Not to everyone, that's sort of a key point, but to more people. That the government had a duty to try and address social issues that were arising from all these changes wrought by the Industrial Revolution, that individual rights mattered, but so does everyone else getting a fair shake, right? So your individual right to success or whatever can't Trump someone else being super, you know, poor or left out. You can't hurt someone to make your own rights stronger, right? It's an argument for this liberalism argued for a moderate, not re radical reshaping of society. They weren't promoting these anarchist things, right? They weren't, you know, these social constructs. They weren't, they weren't promoting radical ideas. They weren't promoting populist ideas, but it was a, a reshaping of the role of government. We talked about, right, prior, and we talked about this in the the podcast on populism and the podcast on the labor movement, people really were interested in sort of changing the role of the government, right? They said the government's been here for a while. It should do something for us, right? We pay taxes. That money should come back to us, which was a pretty different way of thinking about the role of government than had been before. The government was supposed to be this offhands thing, military, international concerns, and that was sort of about it. And now as a sort of liberalism, these coming out of these progressive populist social uh, labor movements, right, is saying, well, we need to sort of rethink the role of that government. And the progressive sort of liberalism was very moderate. They want to get rid of it. They want to change capitalism. But they did want to make sort of some adjustments to how it was working. So where does sort of progressivism fit into all this sort of modern liberalism? It's really an umbrella term, progressivism. It, today is the same thing, right? People describe, you know, someone like AOC and then someone like some blue, random blue dog Democrat, like Manchin or whatever, as a progressive, right? You sort of, it fits all these different types of people, even if they hold wildly different views. And back then it was sort of a umbrella term as well, right? 
It, uh, the sort of group it describes, mostly middle and upper class, uh, mostly white and well-educated, so having like college degrees. And they're sort of, what brought them together was that they are trying to reform the U.S. to better fit into those ideals of modern liberalism that I just talked about, right? So a group of people promoting liberalism. Uh, it was a very urban movement. Most of the reformers, especially the most famous ones, were from places like Chicago, New York, or Philadelphia, right? So it's not as much out west. So you, there are definitely people who are doing it out west. It's these very urban, uh, very northern, midwestern sort of types of people promoting this stuff. So some other characteristics of progressives, and obviously umbrella term once again, so not everyone would fit into exactly this, but it's a good sort of overview of it. They were moralists, right? So very much there was a moral aspect to their politics, saying that this is, you know, good, not just for the economy, not just for politics, but for the moral sort of sanctity of people. They very much believed the government needs to be free of corruption, and then it could act, right? So you see a lot of corruption in the government, and there certainly was. We've talked about Tammany Hall. We've talked about all these bribes going on for railroad companies. These progressives argued, well, you know, before the, the government can do good for people, right, it has to be it has to be free of corruption, right? All these, all these programs we want and stuff won't work if the government is corrupt. They also really wanted to protect the most downtrodden members of society. So you get these progressives who are saying, hey, you know, people who have jobs, even if they're not great jobs, well, they're not our primary concern, right? Our primary concern are sort of the homeless, people who are absolutely downtrodden, who are down, down, down on their luck. That is the prime target for progressives, raising them up versus raising up, you know, whole classes of people. Also, it was very paternalistic, right? This idea that, well, we know what is best for you, right? We, they don't, these you get a lot of progressives don't generally listen to sort of the complaints of the people in the communities they're supposed to be helping, right? They say, well, I know I went to college. I'm successful. That means I know what's best for you. You should do exactly what I'm doing, right? And that paternalism often leads to, to racism and sort of other, these sort of evils you see with people like Margaret Sanger. And finally, it was very much pro-capital, pro-capitalism in general. These progressives weren't trying to, you know, shake the economic system. They weren't trying to install socialism, communism, whatever. They were. They very much wanted to keep capitalism as part of it, and thought that, you know, just a nice, nicer, gentler capitalism could really help a lot of people in the United States. So, why did this come about, right? Why did this progressive movement start? We're looking at a couple of reasons. These things don't just come out of nowhere. You know, they don't just like randomly appear one day, sort of one of the basis of the studies of history, is that things have antecedents, right? There's reasons for stuff happening, cause and effect. So we're going to look at sort of four main causes for the beginnings of the progressive movement. One, the Industrial Revolution, right? That should Everyone's just saying Industrial Revolution all the time. That's a, sort of a key part of this, right? The progressive movement is a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. There's also sort of the growth of the middle class during this time, and we'll go more into that. Fears of radicalism, revolution, right? We talked about the labor movement, you know, the bombings at Haymarket, these farmers trying to organize, right? So fears of that. And then new ideas of scientific authority coming out of the Industrial Revolution in part. So we'll go through all four of those things here. So Industrial Revolution, right? This idea that everything is changing, things need to be changed because sort of the economic system, the way it work is happening is changing and there's ills coming out of that. And so the aggressive movement wanted to address those ills. There's also the growth of the middle class, right? So you have more people with perhaps more free time, especially women, uh, the ability to go to college to pay for college, and then wanting to use that free time to help people. 
There's also this sort of fear, we mentioned this briefly, right? The fear of radicalism revolution. You have these updated, uh, not updated, you have these anarchists in, in Chicago or, you know, the IWW. People are afraid of them, right? They say, hey, capitalism sort of created this life for me, this good life. I want to keep that. And, you know, we can expand it a little bit, change it a little bit so more people are helped. But there is that sort of fear of revolution sort of coming for them that's behind this progressive movement. And then scientific authority, this idea, these ideas and growth of, you know, psychology, sociology coming out of this time saying, hey, we can use these. These are the best ways to do stuff and make life better for people. So we're going to look at sort of two important groups here in the progressive movement. One is the social gospel movement, right? So this sort of the more, this is where the moralistic stuff comes from. And then we're going to look at women in the progressive movement. Women provided a lot of the main driving force behind progressivism, white women especially. So the social gospel movement uh, began in the 1880s. Uh, it combined Protestantism with ideas of social justice. So Protestants were still sort of the major religious force in the country at this time, right? There's more and more Catholics coming into the country, but there's still a lot of prejudices against Catholics, especially from the upper class. And so these social gospels combined sort of this religious Protestantism, this moralistic idea of how the world works with social justice, right? Saying, hey, you know, our religion is calling us to act on behalf of these people. And they sort of believed in general that the problem stemming from the Industrial Revolution could be solved through this combination of social action and sort of increased religiosity, right? If more people are going to church, more people are, are believing in God the way we believe in God, then sort of the world will be a better place. A couple guys to know in this movement. One is Walter Rauschenbusch, born 1861, died in 1918. He preached in this downtrodden neighborhood in New York City, right? So this urban center. He wrote this book called Christianity and the Social Crisis in 1907. Actually, he's pretty handsome. Look him up. Hot guy. Um, and this book called for a new order that would rest upon sort of these Christian Protestant ideas of equal rights and a democratic distribution of economic power, right? So saying everyone sort of has more access to this economic power. Uh, it's not just, you know, four or five people at the top, not just your Carnegie's and Rockefellers who have access to it, but lots of different people. So sort of a big guy behind this. You also have this guy, Washington Gladden, 1836 was born, 1918 died. Uh, so just like Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, he helped bring down Boss Tweed, right? One of his big claims to fame. This is the Tammany Hall boss, you know, this very corrupt politics in New York. Helped bring him down, finally. Uh, he also opposed socialism, as all, a lot of these progressives did, right? But also opposed classical economic thought. Uh, so not he wasn't just, you know, this sort of laissez-faire guy, leave everything alone, let the, you know, invisible hand work it out. But he also didn't like socialism. So this new idea with the, that he called Christian law, this sort of economic idea and he was that like you had the the economy should be you know based on a sort of christian ideals he's actually a very interesting character washington gladden he also called for equal rights and opportunities for black people in the united states black americans uh, but at the same time as he's doing that he also believed that blacks were naturally black people were naturally superior to white people right so you have this sort of dual nature it's still very racist but also calling for equal rights and opportunities for black folks in the united states 
Gladden also believed uh, that immigrants, especially Catholic immigrants in particular, were lazy and prone to alcoholism. So this sort of nature of progressivism coming out again, this dual-edged sword, while you know supporting some good stuff for people, also backing it with all these you know spurious, uh, non-serious claims. He also understood hated stock trading. That was like his one of his number one hates. Uh, this is a quote from him about it. He goes, "This is about stock trading. It is the vampire that is sucking the lifeblood of our commerce. It is the dragon that is devouring the moral vigor of our young men." So you know, very intense words here. Very fantastic words in almost a literal sense uh, about stock trading. And Gladden also the first American clergyman to support unions. Perhaps there's not you know perfect records on that, but did come out in support of unions. He helped lead the National Council of Congregational Churches, one of these new church groups that was coming together to sort of promote progressive ideas at the time. So moving on to sort of talking about women in progressivism, uh, white women became a big, big force about this. Many of the most famous progressives were women, right? We'll talk about some of them here. You'll most likely recognize these names. As I mentioned, mostly uh, middle and upper class women from cities, from urban cities, who had attended university and very well educated. Many sort of ignored or fought against this idea that was pretty common at the time, that women should be at home and began to go out and do work, right? They said, we have these college educations, we have these university educations, we don't just want to be at home doing nothing, like planning parties or whatever, we want to go out and do the work we've been trained to do. So participating in service and reform organizations allowed many women to work and help the public at the same time while not really being seen as doing, you know, quote unquote, men's work, right? Uh, they weren't working in factories, these sort of things. They were working in service organizations, which was deemed to be sort of more acceptable for a, for women. One of the first sort of major projects that came out of this drive for women to go into the workforce were settlement houses. And this is also sort of one of the first major progressive projects that wasn't just talking about politics, but was sort of an actual on-the-ground projects. Uh, they were residencies in poor neighborhoods, right? So they came in, built these buildings in poor neighborhoods, and allowed poor people to live in them. They taught women housekeeping skills, provided food and health care for women and their children lots of times. They're also used as centers of social research, right? You get a lot of sociology studies coming out of this. There's, you know, famous maps of Chicago that came out of uh, settlement houses in Chicago, sort of mapping the ethnicities of communities and marking, you know, sort of neighborhood lines. That that Hall House is sort of one of the most famous ones. Uh, it was actually the second settlement house built in the United States, uh, built in Chicago, founded in 1889 by Jane Adams, along with some other women as well. Part of it is still standing today. UIC, when it was built, uh, sort of took down a lot of the Hall House. It was no longer really being fully used as a settlement house, but they destroyed most of it and kept about just one building of it. But it turned into a pretty large camp campus, but in its heyday, but sort of, and you know, these things were very helpful for a lot of people. They were also sort of centers of Americanization, right? So centers where these sort of the housekeeping skills that were taught, the food that was given and, you know, this healthcare provided was very much based on sort of these college educated white women's ideas of what was good for these people. So if they were recent immigrants from other countries, they were sort of very much not forced, but you know, 
almost forced to sort of change and get rid of the, the ways they had known growing up and become more American in these centers. Other women sort of promote anti-lynching stuff. We've talked about Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, one of the first muckrakers doing lots of anti-lynching work, you know, writing about the horrors of lynching. Uh, and letting northern audiences in on those horrors uh, and sort of working to get these anti-lynching laws passed. As I mentioned before, there was no federal anti-lynching law in the United States until 2022, right? So not all their work was immediately successful. You also, prohibition is sort of one of the big pushes by these progressive women. Many saw alcohol consumption in the United States as a big problem. Um, They wanted to crack down on that consumption. This is, we think of this as sort of a uniquely American thing going on. That's not the case. Uh, There was lots of prohibition movements around the world at this time, most not as successful as the one in the United States. But in places places uh, across the world, there were other sort of semi-successful prohibition movements, and it was certainly an international movement at the time. But in the United States, two big prohibition groups emerged. One was the Anti-Saloon League, which was mostly men, and the other was the Women's Christian Temperance League, which was mostly women. Uh, it has its headquarters. So it was founded in Evanston, Illinois, so just north of here. They saw some early successes, the prohibitionists, but the real success wouldn't come until later. Later, we'll talk about in the 1920s, uh, that podcast, but they did see some early successes in cutting down on this. A lot of this prohibition stuff, which I'll talk go more in depth to later, was actually really based on sort of anti-immigrant uh, stuff and particularly racist. The KKK was a huge part of the prohibition movement, uh, but these early groups had some success and are very much a part of the progressive movement. Women's suffrage was also a huge thing uh, for many of the progressives. Uh, Despite being very active in politics, women could not vote in many elections. Uh, We talk about women's suffrage, you know, coming with the amendment, but women, some women in some states could vote for things prior to that. Several states, especially out west, had full suffrage for women prior to to, to 1919. So like Washington, for example, allowed women to vote in 1910, Idaho in 1896, uh, Wyoming 1869, right? So early, early for a lot of these places. And then you also get sort of, there's presidential suffrage, presidential municipal suffrage, local school elections, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, we... Like the, the amendment was great and sort of enshrined all those rights. And because it was because of sort of this progressive movement, but sort of we think of it as that way, right? This progressive movement wanted to ex- extend rights that some women already had to the rest of the country, not introduce them for the first time to everyone. Uh, and so the suffrage became sort of the key issue for many progressive women at the time. The National American Women's Suffrage Association worked state by state trying to get women the right to vote. Uh, the National Women's Party, founded by Alice Paul, a women's suffrage activist, in 1913 demanded a constitutional amendment. They wouldn't get it for a couple more years but they were sort of working on it. Uh, they, they were met with resistance, right? This wasn't immediately accepted. Alice Paul and several others were arrested, treated brutally in jail for protesting, for uh, doing activist work around women's suffrage. They're putting pressure on the government to act. Uh, and in 1920, white women, remember this is white women, won the right to vote through that constitutional amendment. Uh, this agreement was actually won, not just because people supported it, but there's basically a, an agreement between the government and suffrage groups to not protest too much during World War One. right? A lot of women at this time were sort of, especially the, the more radical of the women's suffrage activists, were very against World War One and were, you know, 
talking about it, protesting it. And the government said, well, if you slow down this protest, we will sort of help pass this constitutional amendment allowing women to vote. And that was actually a agreement that got made sort of in other places as well. England also had this sort of agreement during the time. Economics was also a big place where women progressives were working. Uh, you get authors like Charlotte Perkins Gilman writing about the necessity of women to make their own financial choices, right, to control their own finances, not have to rely on a man to make those choices for them. Writings like the Yellow Wallpaper, Women in Economics, uh, sort of talked about all these things. And they sort of helped bring to light the paternalistic nature of the U.S. government, right? The ways in which the government said, hey, women, you know, we will watch out for you, but we're not going to let you actually do stuff for yourself, right? So they brought to light these things saying, hey, we are just as competent to control our own lives as any man is. Birth control, which I sort of mentioned with Margaret Sanger, also a big part of these uh, women's sort of progressive uh, fights, People like Margaret Sanger, as I mentioned, advocating for freely available, freely available contraception. Uh, Sanger did not approve of abortions, but other activists did work to make them more available. Uh, right, so not every sort of just being pro-conception did not mean you were pro-abortion, but sort of pro-abortion uh, activists did exist at this time. The uh, there's these things called Comstock laws that made it illegal to use the postal service for any obscene materials, quote unquote which was basically meant you couldn't mail contraceptives to the mail, which was sort of a big fight. Uh, you know, people were literally checking the mail, opening mail to look for these contraceptives. Sort of a big push by the progressives, which would be successful, was to find that law unconstitutional, which is eventually what happened. So what were some other progressive reforms? Lots of them. One of the big focus of the progressives was sort of city life. And this is no longer sort of just women doing this, but lots of people as well. So in addition to these settlement houses, temperance movements, lots of the progressives focused heavily on urban life. This sort of makes sense. Most of the progressives were from urban areas, had grown up in cities, lived in cities. So that was their main focus. You get photographers like Jacob Reese, that's R-I-I-S. I suggest looking up some of his photos documenting the dangerous living conditions of many workers, right? Just showing, you know, where they lived, how they worked, and just how dangerous it was. You also get people like Upton Sinclair, uh, who was a socialist, but sometimes grouped into these progressives, documenting sort of the horrible working conditions of the factories, primarily through his book, The Jungle, sort of one of the most famous books in American history, right? Uh, which is a, a fiction work, but based on real life studies of meat packing plants and sort of this book helped lead to the eventual creation of the Meat Inspection Act, the Pure Food and Drug Act, and eventually the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration, right? So trying to put controls on what was being put into the food that people ate, sort of the safety conditions for the workers. And just, you know, general <laughs> well-being of people eating this stuff. You also one of the sort of big moments in the progressive movement was a Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which uh, sort of put into place lots and lots of reforms. This fire was awful. It happened in New York City. Uh, it killed 147 people, mostly women and children, and most of those women were Jewish immigrants. This was a massive, massive fire. 
it took place during at the end of the day in a very visible part of New York City. It was right outside a park, so lots of people saw this, which helped spread the news. There had been fires in New York City before, many of them more deadly than the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, but this one sort of caught national attention largely because so many people witnessed it. It took place up on the like 8th and ninth floors of the Ash Building, A-S-C-H-E, uh, largely, it was created because the well, number of reasons. One, the owners uh, sort of locked the doors from the outside to to stop women from you know escaping, to stop women from you know leaving during work and taking breaks. They'd also recently changed the way that the process of making these shirtwaists had gone on, and there's scraps of this dry material everywhere throughout the building. There's only uh, one elevator, and that elevator was reserved for sort of the executives of the building, so the, the regular workers couldn't use it. And this isn't like, it wasn't unusual that they were doing all this, right? This is very much standard practice in these sort of factories at the time. And when people were leaving uh, for the day, somehow, we don't really know, probably a loose cigar or cigarette or something got flicked, ended up in one of these trash bins, and a fire started completely. They actually saw the fire early, uh, and people were trying to get out but couldn't because these doors were locked. Uh, And the other reason, the fire department actually got there within sort of three minutes of being called, but New York City regulations at the time meant that they didn't have to have ladders or hoses that could reach up to the height of this building, and their fire hoses were unable to have enough pressure to get water to the burning floors, and their ladders were not high enough to get people trying to get out of these windows, right? So this whole sort of, like, just confluence of all these awful things created this huge tragedy. Uh, And this tragedy eventually ended up creating lots of new fire safety laws, not just in New York City, but copied throughout the rest of the country. Uh, These were especially focused on making sure firefighting equipment could reach the top floors of these new skyscrapers that were being built all the time, created professional sort of fire inspectors for the first time, and in some ways increased uh, sort of the fines against proprietors who let this stuff happen on their watch. There's also sort of state-level reforms coming from the progressives, democratizing policies generally, uh, so sort of allowing more people access to power. One is the 17th Amendment, requiring the direct election of senators, which had been in the populist platform and was taken on by the progressives. They also passed laws in many states allowing for referendums and initiatives. These are still big things today, right? We just saw Ohio pass something through their sort of, I guess that was a constitutional amendment, but they can still pass sort of initiatives that came, the ability to do that came out of this progressive period. Primary elections also began, right? So people can now vote on their favorite presidential candidate instead of the party just telling them who that candidate would be. Uh, Recalls established in most states. So the ability to kick someone out of office if you didn't like what they were doing. Most of this work was not going to providing the vote for black voters, however. It was still very much focused on white voters in general. There was also no attempt by progressives to end poll taxes or other sort of similar disenfranchisement efforts, largely focused on white voters. They also, sort of these progressives, supported the creation of professional administrators, right? So a professional state. So getting rid of these political machines, crony politics, where if someone got elected, they would just give their friends all these jobs, whether they were you know qualified for them or not. So creating these professional jobs that were supposedly outside of politics. They also started institu- instituting 
They called them scientific. They weren't really scientific, but such things as competency exams in states, right, which is sort of based on this very much white Protestant idea of what it means to be competent uh, and sort of, you know, so people could keep their jobs after elections. One of the big guys to come out of this was Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he was seen as a progressive reformer and progressive president, uh, sort of, you know, intervening in national affairs to a great degree, uh, offering people a quote unquote square deal was his plan, right? Sort of seen as this big trust buster. One of the, one of the big things he did that sort of put him on the progressive map was around the 19th to West Virginia coal strike. Instead of doing what happened in a lot, we talked about in the labor podcast, you know, the presidents would send in the army or whatever, the National Guard to shut down these strikes. What Teddy Roosevelt did was negotiated a deal between both sides, seen as a sort of new approach to labor conflicts. Didn't really last, you know, presidents after him and even Teddy Roosevelt himself would keep sending in troops to sort of end these strikes, but it was seen as a potential sort of possibility forward at the time. He also Use the the Sherman Antitrust Act from that was you know put into place in 1890, but rarely used until Teddy came in to break up these monopolies uh, that he saw as sort of ruining the economy. He Roosevelt himself wasn't really strictly anti-monopoly, and the guy after him Taft ended up busting more trust than Roosevelt. But Roosevelt still became known as the trust buster at the time. Teddy Roosevelt also very much concerned about the environment. This is sort of probably his biggest legacy out of the progressive movement. He created five new national parks and 50 wildlife refugees. I uh, preserved millions of acres of land through these national parks and wildlife refuge, refuges. Uh, the most of any U.S. president also created the National Forest Service. The, he protected the Grand Canyon um, sort of as this as a protected area. Wilson actually made it a national park. And there's sort of a greater story with the, the Grand Canyon. There's this guy Guy, Ralph Cameron, who wanted to own it. He had these mining claims on it, which he said he owned it. The U.S. sort of fought back against that and said, no, that's not real. So Cameron ran and won for a Senate seat in Arizona, uh, specifically so he could use his office to try to get his ownership of the Grand Canyon back. It didn't work, but, you know, crank, very crank reason to run to win a Senate seat for uh, some other reformers, uh, presidential reformers, Taft also took on this sort of banner of progressivism, uh, mostly because if he wanted to be elected, he had to be seen as a progressive, right? It was so sort of popular at the time that any president who wanted to be elected really had to be, call himself a progressive. Uh, he ended up doing stuff, some stuff in the progressive realm, right? He busted more trust in Roosevelt, including the Standard Oil Trust, so breaking up, you know, control of oil in the United States. But he also did undid some of Roosevelt's reforms, right? Thinking that they were too radical. Uh, he ended up actually losing to Woodrow Wilson in a three party election in 1912. Uh, Wilson largely won that one because progressive had become this such a big term, right? So both Republicans, both Democrats could claim to be progressives. Teddy and Roosevelt uh, was supposed to, you know, sort of run again with Taft, uh, but they had a disagreement. And so Roosevelt formed the Bull Moose Party, uh, which sort of split the Republican vote, allowing Wilson to 
come in as president. Now, Wilson's election, he was a Democrat, ended the almost two decades of Republican control of the presidency. Uh, he was a very vocal progressive, you know, pledging to destroy big business. He created the Federal Reserve, the Clayton Antitrust Act, the Federal Trade Commission, right? All of which were focused on curbing the power of big business, putting some limits on big business. But he did not support the social reforms connected to the progressive movement. He was virulently racist, horribly racist, considered non-white people, all non-white people, inferior to white people, ended up supporting, only ended up supporting anti-child labor laws and women's suffrage bill because of political pressure. He really did not want to support them. He thought, you know, he didn't think that they were good laws or good ideas, but only supported them because of the pressure to do so. Uh, he also screened Birth of the Nation in the White House. The first movie shown in the White House was very is a very, very racist movie about the Ku Klux Klan, sort of promoting the Ku Klux Klan, right? So, and he's very much praised it, right? So the sort of idea of the first movie shown in the White House was Birth of a Nation, I think, is very revealing. They're all not all progressivism was pro-labor. There's also some anti-labor progressives. Many of them were concerned with ideas of efficiency, right? This is in in politics. That could be good, right? Ending corruption, ending cronyism, saying we need government to be more efficient, we need it to work better. The way to do that is to get people who are actually good at their jobs in there. But in business, it sort of meant something else entirely. People like Frederick Taylor developing Taylorism, which is sort of basically this idea of, you know, ways to increase efficiency in the workplace, what it ended up doing was just forcing workers to work faster and faster and faster in more dangerous conditions for the same amount of pay, right? Under this idea of, you know, scientific development and being more efficient in your work just ended up hurting workers. Uh, part is Taylorism is sort of part of this larger idea of what was called scientific management. You know, this idea that businesses should try to get the most out of their employees without having to pay them more. Historians have show that Taylorism actually didn't work. He lied about the results of his process, but he still became fabulously wealthy, fabulously successful, going around the country, sort of talking to businesses and showing them how to put his stuff into place. Some employees did try to, so, sorry, some progressives did try to create better worker-employee relations. The National Civic Federation was a group that tried to do this, but it really didn't work. It really fell flat as employers sort of refused to help their workers in ways, meaningful ways, and workers didn't trust their employers to help them, right? I mean, that makes sense. And if your boss is like, oh, I'm going to help you out, do you really believe them? There's also some sort of other progressive cases during the on this time that related to labor. One was Mueller versus Oregon, which is 1908, a Supreme Court case. Uh, it limited the amount of hours a woman could work in a week. This was meant to give more women more time at home, but actually ended up hurting a lot of poor women who did need to work more hours, right, to get that pay. And it was also based on the idea that women were weaker than men. That law is no longer in effect, uh, but it's sort of one of these progressive things, right, where it's like, oh, yeah, I guess this could help people, but it ended up hurting more people in the long run. Another one of these sort of darker sides of progressivism is their promotion and embracement, embracing of eugenics ideas, right? The sort of scientific ideas that progressives were very much behind. One of them was eugenics, this idea that sort of the forced sterilization of quote unquote weaker people could, you know, make a stronger, better race of humans, sort of create a, a, a better race of people. 
You get people like Thomas Malthus, who's writing a little earlier than all this, but was very important to the progressive movement, arguing that there were too many people and that quote-unquote unfit people needed to be sterilized. These ideas were sort of taken and twisted from Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest. Sort of these forced sterilizations caught on and became a very common punishment uh, for black men and women across the, the United States, right? And that's what sort of the idea is here is that this eugenics, it, it was it meant like they thought that, you know, white people, rich white people were the best people in the United States. Everyone else was weaker than them. And so, you know, you can force sterilize black and black men and women, and that's okay under these eugenics ideas. It's incredibly, incredibly messed up. I mean, even if they weren't doing it just to black people, it would still be wildly awful, but it, be, it came out in very much racist ways as well. Just sort of this horrible, horrible idea. But, you know, seen as progressive because it was, quote unquote, scientific. These eugenics ideas wouldn't go away with the end of the sort of heyday of the progressive movement. They would sort of continue uh, up to and through World War II in the United States. They wouldn't go away right away. So some sort of conclusions out of this podcast episode. One, the progressive movement progressive movement did help moderate the effects of the Industrial Revolution for many people, right? They, there were some reforms that were very helpful for a lot of people. But it also left many people, mostly minorities, behind and often worse off than they were before, right? This double-edged sword of the progressive movement. Progressive ideas were often contradictory, and it sort of became a catch-all term for these different ideas, right? You have people on all sides of the political spectrum promoting all sides of things uh, that were called themselves progressives, that called themselves progressives, even if they didn't necessarily fit into the same group. The progressives were far more effective than the populists or the labor movement, largely, and this is my argument, because it didn't threaten capitalism, right? Because they weren't trying to overturn the economic system, and because it was put in place largely by middle class and upper class people, they weren't seen as a threat uh, and were able to do a lot more. All right, that's it for today's podcast. Have a great rest of your day.